Welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here. And at the center, we examine uh, human liberty in all its dimensions, uh, civil, personal, and economic liberties. And a large part of our work on development stresses the importance of economic uh, freedom, not only for growth and prosperity, but also um, as a key to sustaining other freedoms. And we can be confident uh, about the central role that economic freedom plays in human progress, in great part because of the work of the Fraser Institute, which set out more than a quarter century ago to define and then measure the concept of economic freedom. That project culminated in the publication of this annual report, Economic Freedom of the World, which the Cato Institute has the privilege of publishing in the United States. The report basically produces an objective measure of the quality of institutions and policies in countries around the world over the course of some four decades. Since the project began, the world, of course, has changed dramatically, and our understanding of economic freedom uh, has increased significant, significantly with hundreds of scholarly uh, peer-reviewed articles uh, published that look at the relationship between economic freedom and any number of social indicators. Because of this project, we can think more carefully about the evolution of various policies uh, and their impacts in more than 150 countries. This is not uh, just uh, of academic interest. It has come to matter to policymakers as well. And economic freedom is now a term used by politicians, scholars, and international organizations in their work promoting development. Since the mid 1990s, the Fraser Institute has held uh, meetings of the Economic Freedom Network, the group of think tanks around the world uh, involved in providing valuable local knowledge and input to the authors of this uh, report, and uh, involved in promoting the study in their respective countries. Nobel laureate Milton Friedman was a participant in many of these meetings that I had the, the privilege to attend beginning in the mid-1990s as have been leading scholars and policymakers from around the globe. And I can attest to how valuable these Economic Freedom Network meetings have been to my own thinking uh, about the role of institutions in human progress. Some of the participants of this project have gone on uh, to become involved in reforms in their own countries, like the case of our colleague Andrei Ilarionov, who became the chief economist for President Putin uh, in the early part of last decade and helped introduce market reforms there. Last week, I was in Tbilisi, uh, Georgia, for this year's meeting of the Economic Freedom Network. Georgia is perhaps the country that has most reformed in the shortest period of time of any country that I know of, and it has a lot to show uh, for it. In recognition of the importance of this project, President Saakashvili joined us to discuss our work and his experience as a reformist president. Economic freedom in other words, is a concept that carries a lot more currency today than it did in the past. And we now uh, have a documentary on this topic produced by the Free to Choose Network that we'll be showing on public television uh, this fall. I'm very pleased to be able to show a segment of that film today. But before we do so, it's my pleasure to introduce Michael Walker, the founder of the Fraser Institute based in Canada and the person who in 1984, had the vision to embark upon this project. He will put the project into context. We will watch a, a, a part of this film and then hear uh, from the host of the documentary, Johan Norberg. 
Mike Walker was the executive director of the Fraser Institute from its inception in 1974 until September 2005. Let me say that the Fraser Institute is Canada's preeminent think tank that has affected uh, the public policy debate and public policy itself uh, for many decades now. He is an economist who has authored or, or edited some 45 books on economic topics. His articles have appeared in numerous economic journals, including the American Economic Review, the Journal of Finance, and so on. Please help me welcome Mike Walker. All right, if I stay here. I think it's okay if I stay here. Can everybody hear me? Is it, uh, it's kind of a stupid question to ask, isn't it? Because the last rule, if they can't hear me, I mean, <laughs> but anyway, I always ask it. Um, the, um, I'm very pleased to be here at the Cato Institute uh, for a, a, a wide range of reasons, but mostly because of the fealty we've had over the, uh, the history of both of our organizations and the uh, synergisms which have been created, and, and most recently because of the huge effort which Cato pours into this, uh, uh, this little project, the Economic Freedom of the World Project, which grew from nothing to uh, quite something now uh, in, uh, in many countries uh, around the world. And they aren't the only collaborator. I'll mention some of that uh, a little bit later. Ian has asked me to, to take us back to the beginning. How, why did we get involved in this project? Of course, this is my favorite topic. And uh, for that reason, I've uh, set my alarm here. And uh, the ducks will begin to quack at 15 minutes. And I'm going to stop when the ducks start to quack. Uh, uh, but uh, I could speak for hours about the many, many, many fantastic things that have happened over the course of uh, the time since 1984 when we first started to talk about this. Well, you'll all know, you'll all remember uh, George Orwell's 1984, uh, the book uh, which predicted the, uh, the rise of Big Brother. And in 1984, the Montpelier Society meeting in Cambridge uh, took on the topic of 1984. And uh, I was uh, asked to, uh, to, to comment on... Uh, uh, a paper which had been written uh, by Paul Johnson, the historian, and, and just stepped down as then as the editor of the New Statesman, uh, in which he uh, made he presented the point of view that in fact 1984 was a was a, a botched project. It didn't didn't happen. Uh, the world was not like Orwell had imagined it at all, and we should all relax and uh, go to coffee. Uh, my point of view in, 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 in acting as a discussant of, of Johnson's paper was to say, well, uh, from a political point of view, it's less, it's less obvious that, uh, that uh, Orwell was correct, but in, an economic, in the economic area, the amount of economic freedom that people had, clearly uh, Big Brother was very much part of our lives in the sense that every financial transaction we did of any size, we had to report our social insurance numbers, and that in a society where you're trying to maintain free political institutions, that maybe there are some problems associated with that eventually if we didn't do something about it. Well, the, the ensuing discussion amongst the, the members of the Montpelier Society then honed in on this notion that there are two, there are different kinds of freedoms, economic freedom and political freedom, and how were they related? And astonishingly, we had very little... Uh, scientific evidence or uh, scientific uh, information to aid us in that discussion. In fact, there was none, except for a few uh, uh, a few crude indices which had been built, one by Freedom House, as I subsequently discovered. Nobody knew of them at that meeting. 
and some other work uh, which had been done uh, uh, by econom econometricians as a curiosity. So um, Milton and Rose Friedman were, were good friends of mine and uh, uh, in fact in my paper I had used the expression the, from, the, uh, from uh, uh, Milton's uh, uh, Old Testament, you know, that the free to choose was the New Testament and the Old Testament was capitalism and freedom. Um, and uh, in the Old Testament, he mentioned the fact that the, the, um, that he knew of no time or place where people had enjoyed a measure of, of political freedom where they didn't also use the market to organize their economic affairs. And so um, it was quite natural for me then to say to Milton and Rose after the meeting, well, look, why don't we do, why don't we do a project here to investigate this? Why don't we see whether we can get a grip on this, uh, this uh, whole, whole thing of, 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 of economic, the differences between economic freedom and whether you can have one without the other. Why don't we create a database so we can answer some of these kinds of questions that came up at the Montpelier Society meeting? Now, I must tell you that my, confess that my background was as an econometrician, and as a consequence, the motto of the Fraser Institute from the beginning has been, if it matters, measure it. If you think that something is important, you better make some measurements, because otherwise your knowledge is of a meager and, uh, as uh, uh, some physicists put it, a meager and, uh, and uh, not, not uh, very interesting kind. And so we set out, uh, we had the first meeting, uh, and, and assembled uh, the top minds of the day, I think you could say, uh, uh, who, who might have a, a view on this, uh, this subject. We had the first was 20, we eventually had 80 of the top brains in the world looking at this question, trying to come up with, with, uh, uh, with, uh, with a measurement. Uh, at the second meeting of, the, of the, that group, uh, I... Um, expressed my view about what we were trying to do because at the end of the first meeting people said well what are we actually trying to do here and in that in that second meeting what I said to people was what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a measure so that there's as much discussion about economic freedom as there is about consumer prices unemployment and the other things that are the general currency of discussion about the about our society in which we live we want to make uh, measurements so that we can, we in a in a in a free society, we can have uh, an effect on the on the uh, on the climate of opinion, and thence from that affect uh, the, the the state of uh, of economic freedom. Well, what did we create? We created, an, and a large number of people were involved in this project, uh, and I had over the the course of uh, 25 years, great uh, opportunity to work with uh, a lot of wonderful people. The current uh, uh, producers of the index, uh, Jim Gortney, Bob Lawson, and Joshua Hall, uh, are the future of the index uh, in, in the sense that they've, they've uh, now made that uh, project their own, although still working, uh, uh, fortunately, with the Fraser Institute folks to, uh, to actually realize it. Um, what is the index? It's 43 indicators, um, which is broken down into five uh, groups of indicators. Uh, one on the size of government, the rule of law uh, is the second one. Sound money is the third one. Uh, freedom to trade with foreigners is the fourth one. And freedom to trade within a country is the fifth one. 
Um, the most recent in edition of the index uh, rates uh, 153 countries and provides for many of those countries and now a, con a continuous database from 1970. Well, as you can imagine, this is for people who are interested in doing empirical research is quite a trove uh, of, of interesting stuff. And, um, you know, they have people who are not inclined in this way don't understand how visceral your reaction can be when you find such a set of data which is dealing with something so important. And uh, as a matter of fact, just as we thought it would do, uh, the index uh, has become uh, one of the most utilized sets of data in academic research. More than 400 uh, complete studies using the index have appeared. Well, in fact, a recent article uh, by, um, by Bob Lawson surveyed 400 of them. I, we don't know how many. We haven't recently measured how many citations, how many new, new papers are being done, particularly since we're only looking at English. And as I'll point out to you later, this is now being uh, used in 90 countries. We have a, a network of 90 institutes around the world who are using this data. So we have really no way of knowing how many studies are being done on an ongoing basis using it. But a very large number have been done uh, using the... Uh, using the uh, uh, the index. And what can we say on the basis of that now careful research? Well, we can say that um, those, those countries which have high levels of economic freedom are richer and grow faster than countries which are not. We can say that the people who live in those countries are healthier than in the countries which don't have economic freedom. And when I say healthier, uh, not only uh, uh, is that true, for example, in the case of infant mortality, that they, that they, they actually survive infancy, but, but particularly, and this is very important for, for many of us, is that the, the life expectancy of mothers, the mortality rate, rather, of mothers around childbirth is distinctly reduced by, uh, by higher levels of economic freedom. Better education. The countries which have higher levels of economic freedom have higher levels of education, and once again, most importantly, better levels of education for women. My sister, who uh, is a, a very uh, wonderful person, a physician who used to take her holidays in the, in the camps in Ethiopia during the worst of the, the troubles in, in, in that country, uh, said to me one day as I was, she said, what is this project that you're working on? And I, after, you know, after her eyes glazed over and after she fell asleep four times, she finally said to me, Michael, the only thing that you have to know about a country to know whether it's free is how do they treat their women? And it turns out, you know, that that's not a bad conjecture. I mean, she experienced that she knew, you know, she'd been in a number of these difficult situations around the world, and, and, and probably uh, that's a very good stop. Certainly it is true. I recently f uh, happened on the following fact that the, when you look at the demographics, which everybody's looking at these days, you will find that countries that have higher levels of economic freedom have more women. Isn't that extraordinary? I never would have thought that, that, that the, that the, that that this bias against women would actually show up in the demographics, and it does. You can do a plot that shows you don't, 
You don't have to ask a lot of questions. You can see it right on the chart, which countries are actively uh, mitigating against the success of women and those which are, which are not. Uh, and this also tends to be highly correlated with economic freedom, as I pointed out. Um, so life ex higher life expectancy. The, the lowest level of economic freedom country has a life expectancy 50% of the level of, of life expectancy in, in the highest, uh, most uh, economically uh, free countries. Uh, these countries also experience uh, higher levels of civil freedoms. So that question which we began to debate back in 1984, the answer to the question, are you likely to have more, be more likely to, to, yes, even form a union, but uh, to do a lot of things in your society if you have high levels of economic freedom? And from a civil point of view, the answer is yes. Are you more likely to have political institutions in which are representative? The answer is yes, uh, if you have, an, and is that caused by economic freedom? The answer is also yes, that it is economic freedom that causes these institutions and not the other way around. Um, so um, what we have discovered is, is, I guess you might say, what we thought we would discover. But now we can be very precise about what it is and how it is that it happens. And so when we want to help other people who are trying to achieve the kind of results that we simply take for granted in our day-to-day -day lives, we can show them, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. We have now got, uh, the, the, from a practical point of view, and I know people associated with the, uh, with the oh gosh, now I've got my timers turned on. Uh, oh no, there it is. Oh, I got two minutes. Uh, two, I only got two minutes. Yeah, I got two minutes. Okay, the ducks are going to quack into us. So we have a freedom network of 90 countries around the world. There have been subnational indices created for China, for India, for Canada, the United States, Mexico, Argentina, Italy, Germany. There is now a whole separate economic freedom index for the Arab world, which the Cato Institute has been very helpful in this getting. Discussions about economic freedom now are everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of stories have been written around the globe about economic freedom. Every year there are tens of thousands of stories when we release the economic freedom index in, in the 90 countries in which uh, we, we are doing it. Um, the, um, uh, and as, as, as has been mentioned, we can now point to a lot of people who came to, for example, Andrei Larionov in 1995 got in touch with us because he'd been sent a draft copy of the Economic Freedom Index and said, I want to come to your meeting because I have been looking for the recipe for economic development and I have found it in your index. And he then went back to Russia, of course, and, and, uh, and advised Mr. Putin to follow this recipe for economic uh, development. Uh, would that he had been more effective, but there we go. Not everybody can win. The final, the final thing I would say is that uh, when, when uh, uh, Milton died, uh, his daughter gave me uh, his compass, the compass that we used on uh, walks uh, where we didn't know exactly where we were going to make sure we could get back. As, as Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. And so we wanted to make sure we would end up back at his place. And and. Uh, and I've often thought about Milton and economic freedom index in the context of being a compass. That the economic freedom index is a compass to tell you how to get from where you are to high levels of, of human development. 
Okay, that's it. Uh, no, I don't know. Okay. There we go. I'm done. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, we will now see a segment of the, of the documentary. This is about uh, 16 minutes long. And uh, I should note that this is uh, by the uh, Free to Choose Network, which uh, is planning on having three uh, public television documentaries per year on the topic of freedom uh, and hosted by Johan Norberg. So this is part, actually, of a larger project. So let's, let's begin by watching this segment. I'm Johan Norberg, and I've been studying economic freedom for decades. What is it, and what impact does it have on people's lives? In the last 100 years, the world has created more wealth, reduced poverty more, and increased life expectancy more than in the 10,000 years before. Since the beginning of recorded history until the year 1800, the average person's income barely changed, but in the 200 years since, they increased by 2,000%. How did that happen? And what role did economic freedom play? I'm here in Montreal, Canada, outside the offices of the Fraser Institute, whose work on economic freedom has become the gold standard used by economists, researchers, and policymakers around the world. The Institute has developed an objective way of measuring the economic freedom of a country. And they've created a report that I've often used myself in my writings and lectures. But the economic freedom of the world report is not just about numbers and charts and graphs. No, it's really about people. People who want the opportunity to work hard, to become self-sufficient and independent, and to improve their quality of life. I'm here today to meet with the authors of the Economic Freedom of the World Report and to find out about their process of measuring countries like Zambia. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you for being Gentlemen, here. thank you for joining me. What is this report and how does it work? Well, it's really an effort to view the world through the lens of, of opportunity and control over one's life. Uh, essentially, institutions and policies influence uh, the opportunities that individuals have in terms of choosing their own occupations, choosing entrepreneurial activities, engaging trades with people, and perhaps most importantly, the opportunity to keep what they earn. And we thought it would be interesting to see how those changes affect the economic freedom of people. So the idea was to try to quantify this. So we had to collect data on a lot of countries, data uh, from the World Bank, the IMF, other reputable sources. And then we put it all into the computer. We worked on it for many, many years. Jim had some health problems and lost his eyesight. So uh, that set us back a little bit. But we persevered. And after almost uh, seven or eight years, we finally came out with a good report. So you're basically looking at the kind of things that would give people power over their incomes, their wealth, their jobs, the freedom to start a business, to trade. Precisely, precisely. Our story continues in a divided land. Until the end of World War II, North and South Korea were one nation, one culture. Today, they are two drastically different countries. Dyson Kim knows both. When I escaped from North Korea, I was 27. I crossed the Jangbaekhyun River into China. There were too many North Korean security guards patrolling there. So I walked the mountain trails at night with no food for a week. 
I went hiding during the day and walked the trails at night again. In desperation, Dyson Kim fled North Korea. He had been trading goods across the border in China to provide for his parents and siblings, and had learned he was on a watch list for illegal trading. His life was in danger. He and his younger sister would have to flee. In the dark of the night, they crossed into China. I was not without fear. It was the fear of getting caught and eventually getting shot to death if brought back to North Korea and the fear of punishment to my family. Defectors who are caught and returned to North Korea face imprisonment, torture and often execution. Nearly 3,000 North Koreans escape to the South each year. I brought my younger sister with me. Unfortunately, in China we were separated. While I was away, someone kidnapped her. After losing my sister, I came to South Korea alone. Daesung hoped he could do more to find his sister from the safety of the South. When I first arrived in South Korea, I worked for a delivery service before enrolling in Hanguk University. While studying at the university, Daesung received a call from South Korean authorities. His younger sister had been found. My younger sister had managed to escape to South Korea. She told me that our older sister had also escaped and was living somewhere in China. So I arranged to bring my older sister here to South Korea too. One of the most repressive regimes in the world today, North Korea has maintained an aggressive policy of international isolation. A leading scholar on North Korea is Andrei Lankov. It's a very simple story in North Korea. It began as a Stalinist country, and in the late 50s it decided to become hyper-Stalinist. They developed an economic model, which Joseph Stalin himself would probably find somewhat excessive. Everything was rationed. The government decided how much grain or soy sauce or cloth you should consume, depending on your place in the official hierarchy. This economy did not work. And when the Chinese and Russians stopped providing aid in the early 1990s, the North Korean economy essentially collapsed. The regime was unable to adapt. They could no longer provide the food on which its people had depended. Famine was widespread. It is estimated that at least half a million, and possibly as many as three million, North Koreans starved to death. There were times when I went without food for a whole week. During those days, my only dream was to eat a stomachful. When I came to South Korea, I saw food was plentiful. Nobody seemed to care about eating a stomachful. They have other dreams instead. How did this incredible contrast between North and South Korea come to be? For centuries, North and South were one unified country, living under the shadow of its three larger neighbors, Russia, China and Japan. 
In 1910, Japan claimed the Korean peninsula for itself and went on to occupy the region for 35 years. When Japan was defeated at the end of World War II, Korea was finally liberated by the Allies. But there were two visions of a post-war Korea. A Soviet vision of a centrally planned economy to oversee the North and an American vision of free enterprise to restructure the South. Eventually, the peninsula was split in two. Tensions remained high, culminating in the Korean War from 1950 to 1953. Most of the fighting was actually done on the South Korean side. A lot of it was destroyed. All of the industry that had been built up, that was all leveled. Everything you can see has been built over the last few decades, and it began absolutely from the scratch. It was a country of unpaved road, ox carts, and such troops just 40 or 50 years ago. For years following the war, South Korea was governed by a series of military dictators. The country languished in poverty. Then, in 1961, a new dictator came to power. General Park Chung-hee wanted to grow Korean industry and engineered nationwide economic liberalization. For the first time in Korean history, private property rights were truly protected. He liberalized markets more than they had ever been before. It made South Korean economy to explode, I mean, grow very rapidly in some year rate of increase of per capita income was more than 12%. The average growth was almost 9% per year. It was incredible. As South Korea developed its market economy, demands for legitimate political rights erupted. South Korea's first non-military president was sworn into office in 1992. If we look at history, a great deal of economic success stories happened under control of the authoritarian governments. Once modern economy starts to grow, it produces middle class. It produces people who are independent-minded, who don't want to be bossed around by a guy in the presidential palace or royal palace, who sooner or later begin to demand political participation. This is what happened in South Korea. It was a country of subsistence farms. It was transformed in 30 years, in one generation, into an extremely well-educated country of skilled workers, of professionals, of university students. And these people did not say thank you to the dictators. They said, enough. <laughs> Political democracy does not always guarantee economic freedom. Very often, the majority of the people want big government. Majority of the people want to tax the rich people and redistribute it among themselves. The name of that sentiment is the economic democracy. It's not economic freedom. So we have to be very careful about political democracy in order to protect economic freedom.
After completing his university degree, Dyson Kim built a venture capital company with a focus on small businesses run by fellow refugees from the North. The North Korean defectors have no relatives in the South. They are mostly single and have no property. So borrowing money is the hardest thing for them and also the most important thing. Daesung meets regularly with various owners to discuss business issues, cultural differences and basic moral support. North Korean refugees have many challenges. They often change their names in order to avoid arrest and reprisals to their relatives who are still living in the North. Then they find they are not so easily integrated into the South. Ok Boon and her family escaped from North Korea two years ago. I escaped with my husband, myself and two sons. Mr. Kim helped us with loans. That was how we got started. We figured that the plastic recycling business has a better competitive edge than other businesses. So we decided to take a risk by loaning them money. By no means is plastic recycling an easy business. My body aches all over. It is hard work. We hope to be in a situation to transfer an established factory to my son in the future. Yang Gum fled North Korea with her family in 2008. There was hardship in the beginning. A lack of capital was one thing. It's been almost a year now. We went through hard times, but we learned a lot. Just being here like this is a dream. In North Korea, survival itself was too tough, too tough. So I never dreamed of such things as I now have. I expect that someday North Korea will open her doors. When it does happen, the former North Korean defectors will be experienced business people backed with funds. Then we'll be able to play our roles in the reconstruction of North Korea. Daesung's venture capital company has funded 29 small businesses to date. My sisters are all engaged in running a business of their own. We all want to visit our parents' gravesite someday and want to play a role in helping North Korea become a wonderful country. Today, South Korea is ranked 37 in the Fraser Economic Freedom of the World Report, putting it in the top quarter of nations measured. North Korea is not included in the report due to a lack of reliable data, but we know that it is one of the world's least free economies. Guys, you've been using this report to rank countries for the past 17 years. What have you learned from the analysis of the data? Well, one of the most important things we've learned is that countries that are economically more free uh, grow more rapidly and achieve higher income levels. And in fact, not just a little bit higher income levels, but a lot higher income levels. For example, the uh, per person income of the highest quartile, the highest one-fourth of economically free countries is seven times what the figure is for the lowest group. 
So that's a huge difference. But but it's not just about uh, over rising incomes overall. It's also about the poorest of the poor. If we look at that bottom quartile, the poorest 10% of those societies have average incomes of about $1,200 per capita. If we look at the upper quartile, the most free quartile, they have average incomes of over $11,000. Now, that's not a lot to live on, but it's a whole lot more than $1,200. So as people work their way out of poverty, that's a substantial improvement in their quality of life. Uh, it's not just about the quality of life, it's about the quantity of life. If we look at the most free countries and compare them to the least free countries, the most free countries have substantially higher life expectancies, 18 years. You know, a lot of that relationship is probably driven by the fact that more free countries have higher incomes, better sanitation, nutrition, things like that. You know, if you live to be 80 versus 60, that's the difference between getting to know your grandkids see your grandkids grow up, see your great-grandchildren. Economic freedom is, is sure, it's about income, it's about growth, but it's also about quality of life and knowing your grandkids or not. And if you have more economic freedom, you have a better chance of knowing your grandkids. And that's more important or as important as how many cars are in the driveway and things like that. Well, we'll now hear from uh, Johan himself. Johan is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and he's a, a writer who has focused on globalization, entrepreneurship, and individual liberty in his uh, numerous writings, including uh, a number of books, such as Financial Fiasco, which is about the uh, financial crisis in the United States, and In Defense of Global Capitalism, which uh, we published also here at the Cato Institute. He's the author of numerous other books in Swedish. Before uh, joining us at the Cato Institute, he was uh, head of political ideas at Timbro, which is Sweden's <coughs> leading think tank. And also, prior to, to being here at Cato, he was a fellow at the Brussels-based Center for a New Europe. Uh, Johan's articles and his opinion pieces appear regularly in Swedish media and in international uh, newspapers. And uh, he has become quite well known as a promoter of free trade, globalization, and liberty broadly. Please help me welcome Johan. Well, thank you very much. I would like to use my time here to say a couple of things about what has happened in the world since uh, the first ratings of the Economic Freedom of the World Report and um, the real-life results of that, but also the kind of new threats to economic freedom that might be the result of this very development. And then I would just like to end by saying why I do this um, all the time. Um, I'm so happy about the reports. Uh, Michael, I'm, I sincerely might thank you for initiating this and working so hard with this. This is an, a data source that is incredibly important, but it's also a compass. It is also a recipe. It's incredibly useful when you're working for people's freedom. And let me start by dispelling a myth, a possible myth. I'm not so eager on the index just because it happens to prove that Sweden comes out the best. Um, but it actually does if you look over a longer time period. When it comes to Western countries, the one that has made the biggest improvement in economic freedom since 1970, when we had the first ratings, is actually my own country, Sweden. It's next to New Zealand. It's very, very close there. Uh, Sweden traveled from 5.5 to around 7.7 .7 on this 10-point scale. And as a matter of fact, today, when you look at these 
five subcategories, these five different areas of economic freedom, you can see that Sweden actually comes out ahead of the United States in four of those five categories, which shows you that it's possible to change uh, things. Well, partly it's because the United States is um, falling, unfortunately, <laughs> but, um, but Sweden has also made a lot of improvement. On the other hand, Sweden cheated by starting out with a ruined economy, a command and control economy in the 1970s that yeah. had left no room for economic freedom whatsoever. It's easy to improve when you start out from, from nothing. At that time, in 1970, Sweden had the same economic freedom rating as Ethiopia has today. And Ethiopia, mind you, is considered by most people as the last best hope for the state-led socialist model in Africa. And that tells you something about not just Sweden, but about what has been going on around the world uh, in these, in this uh, time since 1970, when we, is where we have the first numbers from. During that period, well, actually the first period when we have numbers for more countries, for several countries, 1980. Since 1980, the world as a whole has climbed from 5.3 to 6.9 on the economic freedom scale. Which means that the world as a whole moved from the kind of economic freedom that India and the Philippines had in 1980 to where Germany and Taiwan were. And that's quite an astonishing change. It's a rapid liberalization that the world has gone through and it has led to Quite remarkable results as well. Incredible achievements. It took mankind around 100,000 years to achieve the GDP per capita of 1980. But it only took 30 years to double that level. That's the rate of increase in human living standards. During that period, more than 700 million people left extreme poverty as measured by the World Bank, which means that. For every column in the economic freedom report, for every year when you look at the chain-linked index, you can see that around 24 million people are lifted out of extreme poverty. For every year, every column. And that happened the quickest in the countries that liberalized the most. It's very easy to see that kind of correlation when we have reports like this. And this is remarkable, and we have to step back once in a while and think of that development on this historical scale. In a way, it's even larger than the Industrial Revolution that lifted the Western world. Because what was the Industrial Revolution? That was 200 million people increasing their average income, doubling the average income in about 60 years. Today, countries like China and India have done the same for 2 billion people in a bit more than 10 years. So. 10 times more people in a fifth of the time. In a way, that's 50 times bigger than the Industrial Revolution. And how that changes living standards, how that is building now a middle class around the world that's not content with the old um, systems is quite remarkable and will have an astonishing effect, I think, on the world, on us, on culture, on the future of, of democracy. Uh, and it has been connected so far to other freedoms as well. Uh, as one of the researchers in this uh, segment said, people who see this um, economic liberalization, they don't thank their dictators, they say goodbye. 
and they move on because now they deserve something more. Now they demand something more. So this development has gone hand in hand with the deepening of the rule of law, with political democratization, with more personal freedoms around the world. If we look at the the Freedom House report on their attempts to measure political and personal freedoms. During this same period, we've gone from 29% of countries being uh, measured as free to 46, 29 to 46, whereas those who are really unfree have gone from 46% to 22%. This is changing our world dramatically. But it also means that we have new threats in new disguises all over the world. And let me just uh, mention three that we have to think about as we move on in the world when we try to discuss and defend economic freedom. The first risk is that they might repeat our mistakes. It's very easy as you get richer to turn your back to the well and think, take the wealth, the development for granted and forget about the sources in human ingenuity, in entrepreneurship, in economic freedom, and begin to promise away the wealth that you see all around yourself to build entitlement states and welfare states that build up more debts than they can really handle. That's the first problem. They might repeat our mistakes. But there is also a risk that we might repeat their mistakes. Over the last few years, we've seen a change in attitudes to state capitalism in the Western world. As other countries are converging, as low and middle income countries are growing more rapidly than, than we do, some people begin to think that look at their state-led industrial models, their state-owned enterprises, their state capitalism, and think that this might be something that we have to learn from. We have to be more active when it comes to industrial policy, picking winners in different sectors and, um, and helping the businesses that aren't thriving with, um, with well, uh, with, with uh, subsidies and, and other areas. And, and therefore, it's incredibly important to look at uh, the different aspects of economic freedom. It's incredibly important to look at what sectors are being opened up and in which sectors do we have this kind of state intervention. And it's very easy to see that these countries benefit and prosper in the various sectors that have been opened up. China started out by growing Ronald Coase published a book before his death on how China became rich and really shows that this is grassroots movement, the development in the rural areas, how agriculture is being liberalized, not by a top-down commands, but from working families who are fed up with not being able to feed their kids and starting to privatize in secret. And only after that happened, only after that took off uh, in, in so many rural areas, the Communist Party said that, okay, we like socialism, but we don't like starvation, so perhaps we should learn something from this. Uh, and this is the, the, the case in, in most countries uh, where we look, whereas the state-owned enterprises are on a regular basis destroying capital. Yes, they can grow fast. Yes, they can become national champions since they have access to cheap credit, to subsidies and a lot of privilege, uh, but they are not the ones who build up these countries and, and accomplish the growth and the wealth creation that makes up the wonders over there. So that's something that we must keep in mind. The third 
risk in the future is that the growing strength of other countries, of other parts of the world that we use to consider the periphery of the world, might result in hostile reactions in fear on our part, because we're not used to this world. It's a kind of Copernican uh, revolution where we begin to realize that we are not the center of the universe. And one, if we don't understand how that came about, how we can prosper from that and adapt our institutions accordingly, well, then the easiest reaction is to fear this. And fear is very dangerous because it paralyzes your brain. And it activates a lot of fear and flight uh, responses. The flight response being flee away from the global economy and uh, increase uh, not just active industrial policy, but protectionism. We haven't seen that to a large extent so far, but we've seen a lot of backdoor protectionism in the last few years. We've seen a lot of financial protectionism growing in, in, um, in and around the world. So it's incredibly important to look at this and see how the market can create win-win solutions as long as we continue to adapt our economies and open up to the best competition from other places. And to this comes more, two more eternal problems, in, if you will. Uh, the first one being, and we're all very familiar with that by now, that in a crisis, all bets are off and all the economic literacy is thrown out the window. Because then again, you're, you're fearful and you have the same fight or flight response. And then you might fight violently and punch in all directions. And we've seen how uh, we've seen more active industrial policies, bailouts, games that are being played with our monetary systems, changes to our legal structure where we really don't care about the old way of doing things. And that's something that we have to be reminded of as well. And the fifth one being the fear of inequality, of unequal results, which is the same when we're growing as when we're in a crisis. When we're growing, it's easy to complain about someone getting ahead even faster than others. When we're not growing, it's easy to think of uh, the prosperity of someone else as, as something that, was the, uh, that resulted in your dire situation. And that's something that we also have to keep in mind constantly and to discuss, again, the win-win solutions that economic freedom can create and make sure that we can all grow together. This film is an attempt to contribute to this. As uh, Ian pointed out, this film is an ongoing process to explain and illustrate freedom uh, human dignity and economic freedom to illustrate and put a face on this. Uh, what you just saw was an attempt to combine the hard data, the facts, the statistics with the human interest stories to show that this has a real life effect on struggling families and businesses around the world. It's not just something that shows up in data columns. It's something that affects people's everyday lives, their ability to lead better lives in the future. If it matters, measure it. I agree. That's the first thing we have to do. But if it matters, we also have to illustrate it and put a human face to it and show this to, uh, to people. We also, in other segments, we go to Chile, we go to Zambia, we go to Slovakia to look at these examples, to these stories, these faces. In a completely different context, Joseph Stalin pointed out that the death of one man is a tragedy, but the death of millions, that's just a statistic. 
and I'm afraid it works the same way when there's good human progress. Um, the uh, reduction in poverty with uh, 700 million, that's just a statistic. But when you put a face on it and show one person lifting himself out of poverty, that's a human triumph. That's something that people relate to. That's something they remember. And then they can move on to the theories, to the, to the data that shows how this is being done. Because in the end, capitalism is not about the big guys. It's not about the crony capitalists. It's about people working hard to create a better life for themselves and for their families. And to regulate and control capitalism and hold it back is to regulate, control, and hold back these people, these families, who are doing everything they can to put out better goods and services to make their own life better. It's about their choices, it's about their dignity, it's about control of people's lives. It's about the ability, the chance of seeing your children grow up, to increase the chance that you'll see your grandchildren grow up. That's why we make these films, that's why the Economic Freedom of the World Index is so incredibly important. That is why we do this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Johan. Well, we have time for questions. If you have any, raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation. And we'll take a question here first, please. I'm Gene. Uh what about external interference? Uh, have you done any kind of an assessment of how sanctions have affected uh, the internal free markets of these places, even in places where you have uh, uh, planned economies, if, if the external pressures are on them so that they have no markets, then it seems like you, you can't necessarily hold uh, the the internal government responsible in those cases. Well, that's the dandy thing. I mean, I don't know that anybody has studied it, but that's a good suggestion, isn't it? To have a look at that. Uh, the dandy thing about the index and the way in which we've constructed it is that you can you can separate out uh, the effect of domestic regulation, the regulation of of um, internal markets and the regulation of relationship between domestic citizens and foreign su citizens. And, and um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a very good, I mean, it's something we can answer in principle, but in the sense that we can look at uh, what's the, whether the correlation uh, of, of uh, the, the first measure that I mentioned, the, the uh, internal regulation, which is the totalitarian feature of things, uh, has a bigger or lesser impact than than the trading one. Uh, and you know, I my my, my uh, you know I don't know. I I, I was going to say my gut reaction would be that the international one would be more important because it's because it provides for larger uh, um, you know gains from from trade than uh, I mean for a typical small country the access to an international market is much more important uh, because you, get, you, you can't get gains from trade if you're in a small environment. But, I, you know, it's, it's a very good question and worthwhile asking. I don't know what the answer is. Take a question right here. 
Thanks, Phil Harvey, DKT Liberty Project. Uh, I'm interested in the, in the difference between correlation and causation in, in some of these cases. Specifically, um, uh, you have both suggested that economic freedom pushes toward political freedom. And uh, South Korea, of course, a very nice example, which democratized pretty much right on schedule. Uh, but China has not. And Hong Kong, a sort of subset there, managed to be one of the two freest, economically freest, uh, countries in the world for decades and decades and decades without anything resembling political freedom. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering just how strong the impetus from economic freedom toward uh, political uh, freedom really is. I think you're, you're putting that to, to me, are you, or to both of us? Yeah. Well, it's, why, it, why don't you have a first crack at it? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a very good question, and uh, I don't think it's any kind of uh, natural law that uh, we see causation in this way, but I do think that uh, most studies, most uh, attempts to look at the change in values of people as they grow richer point to a demand for a more open political system. You can go from even you can go from the macro level you can but you can also look at psychological experiments uh, when people think that they uh, um, have a better life a better education um, better income might not even be the case it might just be that the uh, test leader in a psychological experiment tells them that they belong to uh, a group that uh, has has more better better lifestyle like that uh, they put up with less bullying even less waiting times when they're, they're sitting somewhere uh, they don't accept what's being given they demand more so i think there's something there it's there's something there when we look around the world as well there are exceptions definitely i don't think that hong kong really qualifies because even there, you saw how populations began to uh, demand when they were a British colony to demand more freedoms. It was a politically free society in almost all aspects, except the franchise, except the uh, uh, parliament, uh, uh, the, the, uh, how, how that was uh, being dealt with. But people demanded that as well. But the British said no. Today, people are demanding that as well. But the Chinese say no. So I think that you have the same kind of sort of turbulent uh, uh, situation in a way. In China, that has not happened so far. But I would say that uh, a lot of personal freedoms are now at a completely different uh, state than they were 30 years ago, because people have demanded more. The freedom to choose your profession, the freedom to dress in whatever way you wish, even freedoms to express yourself, the freedom of religion, though still constrained to a terrible degree, is much larger. In Mao's days, you weren't even allowed to um, pick your partner to decide whom to marry or if to get a divorce. You had to get a permission from the party to do that. All those things are changing, and I think that beneath the surface, we do see a lot of uh, interest from people to, um, to, to have more democracy in other uh, spheres as well. What we do see though, which, is, which can hide this development for a longer period, is that often this change takes place in the middle of an economic crisis. It is when, the, um, when people 
lead better life year after year. They begin to demand something more, but they might not be willing to risk the kind of political stability that's there. But the moment there is a crisis and they can see that their ambitions are not being fulfilled anymore, they do not trust the uh, state to make the right decisions on how to deal with the crisis, then things change. I think that's the, what we saw in many of the Asian countries, in the Asian crisis and, and other areas. A long period of rapid growth, then a big crisis. That's when democracy takes, takes deep roots. So that might be uh, a, a guess when it comes to, to China well, as well. Well, the, the uh, empirical answer to your question is that uh, there are ways of sorting out causality using uh, double-ended tests and things of that kind to see, you know, causation or timing tests to, to see which, which cause which. And there's no, doesn't seem to be any question now, I think, that, that longitudinally and uh, um, uh, cross-sectionally that you do find a, an effect of economic freedom producing freer uh, institutions measured in a variety of uh, variety of ways, but I would caution patience uh, about all of this. I mean, if you if you think about the history of the development of, of democracy uh, as we practice it in in uh, in Britain, and let's talk about not so much democracy but but political freedom, which is a broader kind of concept. I think it took it a very long time to come about. It took long after the Industrial Revolution. It took, you know, into the. It really took into the to the early 1900s uh, before uh, you see real political freedom in Britain. And that was. This is now almost 200 years after they had gotten the the, the development. And Lord Acton is very perceptive. I, I didn't agree with everything Lord Acton had to say about things, but he had, was very perceptive about how that process happens, and it happens by there being created pockets of private wealth which are not dependent on the connection to the to the crown to the to the to the dictator uh, which ultimately can collectively challenge the power of the center uh, and you are not really going to get real uh, political freedom in that sense until you have the mass of wealth uh, distributed in such a way as it can challenge the center. And we see that in, in the case of, of China gradually happening. It's not going to happen uh, soon because there are so many vested interests who want to stop it from happening. But I think that uh, my, uh, uh, my way of thinking about it, I've been working in, in uh, Hong Kong and in, in China for a very long time, and, and my way of thinking about what's happened there uh, is to think about China being invaded by Hong Kong which is the opposite of what we thought was going to happen in 1997. China has been invaded by Hong Kong in a most marvelous kind of way because in the, in the pursuit of their own interests, these oligarchs are making this economic development, which is going to be their undoing, but not quite yet. So that's the way I, I, I think of, the, you know, of, 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 of a process. I do have to make one comment about something that... Uh, I, don't, I haven't read Ronald Coase's book, but if he said that that happens spontaneously, I have to correct that. Because Zhao Ziyang, uh, who doesn't get nearly enough credit in all of this for well-known reasons, uh, Zhao Ziyang was the, was the premier of, the, of, of China, was the, was the secretary of the Communist, Communist Party when, when Tiananmen Square went down. 
And Zhao Ziyang wrote a memoir called The Prisoner of the State, which reports on his own discovery process. And I might tell you there are only three people mentioned in that book from the three Westerners mentioned. Uh, uh, one of them is Milton Friedman. Uh, and he describes Milton Friedman as being his teacher, and he was the student. And, and Zhao Ziyang, um, in 1961, was appointed to be the, the secretary of the Communist Party in Sichuan province. And he had come from a, a different part of, of China to do that. And he was presented with the following set of figures, that in the preceding 18 months, 10 million people had died of starvation. And it was Zhao Ziyang who said, there's got to be a better way. And he made it legal in Sichuan province for families, what he called, he created what he said he called the family farm. <laughs> and he permitted people to sell what they produced on their family farms as compared to in the, out of the collective. And that was the beginning of the, of the economic resurgence, first of all, the end of the starvation, because it was quickly followed, followed elsewhere. And really, Zhao Ziyang, I think, not, Mao, not, not uh, Deng Xiaoping, who gets all the credit, it's really uh, Zhao Ziyang's ideas about liberalization that, uh, that really, that, uh, really re reflect uh, uh, the impact of the West uh, inside, uh, inside China. And it wasn't something that just spontaneously happened, more, more importantly, because they would have crushed it and stopped it if it weren't for Zhao Ziyang. Okay, we'll take a question. Did you have a question? And then we'll go in the back. Question right here, please. Hi, I'm Eric from Sweden. Hi, Yuan. Hey. Long time no see. <laughs> uh, my question is something uh, quite different from what you discussed uh, till now. It's about um, the regulation of um, economy. Uh, you were on that and praised the freedom and you praised the lack of regulation. So my question is about how do you think the um, ecological impact of rapid growth could be addressed without regulation? Hmm. Well, it would be interesting to hear from Michael later on whether um, how environmental regulations are being dealt with in in this index. Uh, but I but the question is much broader than that. It's whether we can uh, deal with environmental problems in uh, in a non-regulatory way, and I think the best way of looking at that is to look at the. Uh, what has been going on in, in the Western world since 1970. And it's that uh, actually for most of the um, different polluters, uh, emissions, we've seen a decline, a rapid decline in, in cities, city air, in, in rural areas, in our uh, water, in, uh, in most places. There are exceptions to that trend, but the general trend is very strong. And that is uh, something that we're also thinking about the 70s as the period when we began to regulate many of these emissions. We began to measure uh, and we began to regulate. Uh, but this is also a question of um, 
where we have to sort through correlation and causation. Because in most uh, of the places where we can see this trend, uh, the decline started before the regulations came there. We had entered a period when we had the kind of wealth, we had the kind of technology that we could begin to deal with those problems. And in fact, many of the um, environmentally destructive industries that existed benefited from doing this. Less uh, resource waste, uh, less, uh, less problems meant more profits and so on. And that made it easy to regulate it. If you had started to regulate it at a stage when we didn't have the technology, when we didn't have the wealth to deal with it, we would have ruined uh, those industries, would have ruined that, that kind of living standard. So I think that there is something to be said about the spontaneous development of better technologies and greener technologies. One case in point right now is one trend that's not changing. One uh, is uh, CO2 in in our atmosphere that has continued to grow in in most instances in most places as the economy has grown there's more energy and uh, efficiency but that doesn't really matter because the growth is is so rapid but we've seen a change in trends in the last few years in the united states specifically uh, a bit in Europe as well, but much more in the US. Why is that? Well, partly because of the economic crisis, we see uh, less industries working very hard around the clock. But it's also because of um, the spontaneous and uh, very uh, market-oriented development of fracking technology, which meant that we've seen a collapse in the price of natural gas, which makes it easy to uh, switch from coal, which produces much more CO2 emissions, to natural gas instead, uh, which has made it easier for industries, but it has also meant that it's it's much more uh, destructive to, uh, to our atmosphere since natural gas uh, gives away something like a third of the CO2 emissions that... Uh, uh, that uh, coal does. So again, I think that the conclusion is that it's innovation that's driving greener technology rather than, than regulation, whereas many of the attempts to regulate it, specifically when it gets to trying to pick different uh, green technology winners, uh, have been a complete waste of resources and hasn't really led to the kind of green results that we would have wanted to, uh, to see. But that being said, I think that there is a role for different polluter pace principles that the fact that if you ruin someone's uh, forest, uh, someone's uh, sea, you are going to have to pay for it. And if that's a regulation, well, perhaps that's a good regulation. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, um, once again, uh, important to have a sense of perspective. Uh, Pierre Desrochers, who's a Canadian economist, uh, has been making a lot of uh, studies of what the world was like before this all, before, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. What, what, what was environmental degradation like then? And he points out that a lot of the problems that we, we point to today, uh, polluted waters and everything, happened as a direct result of the creation of community sewers. We created a commons uh, that people could use to pollute. And before that, there were huge industries based on the reprocessing of, of what were waste products out of industry. You know, everything but the squeak in, uh, in the butchering business uh, of pigs was, was because you had to deal with your own offal. You couldn't just 
dump it in the community sewer. And so, um, uh, and, and he even, he's even able to quote Marx, as a matter of fact, uh, as talking about, uh, in, in, in Pierre's work, he's, he's talking about Marx commenting on how efficient this market is of doing away with the external, what would otherwise be externalities from, from the production process and so on. So part of what we have to do, of course, then is to think about, you know, how do we end up in, in our, how do we end up in, with, with these problems? And we ended up with them because we made some mistakes along the way and we can stop that. We can stop people from, you know, we can remove that commons, uh, commons feature. Now, once again, the empirical evidence is quite clear on this. Uh, and one of the early people to do work on this before he was deified uh, was Larry Summers. Larry uh, <laughs> used to be used to be a really good economist, and uh, the, the, uh, Larry was working at the at the World Bank, and uh, I remember show, uh, him showing us this, these wonderful results he had gotten about the J curve, about how in the initial phases of development there's a reduction in environmental amenity because people trade off naturally enough getting a full belly, as was pointed out in the screener, be against environmental amenity, but they very quickly stop wanting to live in their own uh, output. They want to clean up their water. They want to, and, and in fact, there has been a fantastic uh, improvement in environmental amenity in all of the wealthy countries. We in the Fraser Institute, once again, if it matters, measure, we have been measuring longitudinally the, the, longitudinally the, the impact of economic process on the environment in Canada, and what we find is that the quality of air is, is, has improved dramatically not because of environmental regulation was started long before, before that process, but because people want to have a cleaner environment. And so uh, the, the number one uh, environmentalist policy is more economic freedom. And now the people have actually done the tests, and there have been a number of studies which have done showing that if a country has more economic freedom, because it produces more affluence, you get... Uh, a, a you get an increase in the in the avail in the availability of clean water. You know that's the number one. You know the number one pollution problem in the world is people polluting their own drinking water. And so, uh, and 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 so, uh, what has been discovered is is if you get more economic freedom, you get an increase in that single signal uh, um, indicator of environmental amenity the presence of, of clean uh, drinking water. And so I, you know, I think it always comes back to the same, if you want to have any of these things that relate to the good life, you better make sure you produce economic freedom. That's the compass that shows you the points in the direction of all the good things that you want and, and you should, all, you, you should uh, always adopt it. Can I just add in defense of the present day version of Larry Summers uh, that he did write in a private uh, conversation and warned uh, the White House that uh, the government is lousy at picking winners when it comes to green technologies. And he did that, he wrote that um, when it was a particular industry that White House wanted to subsidize, particular business, Solyndra, <laughs> <laughs> that went down in flames uh, after having wasted the taxpayers' money. So I think that uh, even 
bad economists, if that's what he's turning out to. No, he's not Real, a bad economist. I, I, I never said he was a bad economist. No, I just said right. he was deified. And once you're deified, you have a different okay, outlook less on than the a world. Good so. economist, at least then. Uh, realizes the big problem when it comes to lots of the environmental policies that we have today, that it kind of assumes and takes for granted that the government and the politicians and the bureaucrats, they know which kind of technology is going to work out for the best. They know which kind of businesses that are going to uh, work out. And uh, I, I think that history uh, has, has proven uh, quite well that uh, they are not smarter than the combined knowledge of, uh, of scientists, of markets, of consumers making different decisions. And Solyndra is a case in point. Okay. But, that, but the purpose of cylinder was was to was to provide money to the boys and the girls, right? It wasn't. It was. It was a and, and it photo was a, opportunities. A straight, straight ripoff. I mean, you know, other parts. Nobody of thought ever thought it was going to work. I mean, <laughs> other parts of that private conversation was White House sending out messages to Cylindra that when we're going there looking at solar cells and panels, uh, can you please not dress the way you do there? Because it looks like you're not creating blue collar jobs. Can you remove the ties and the shirts and have some kind of overalls and, <laughs> and things like that. And yeah, they did. And they got their money. And they went down in flames. Okay, we have time for two, at least two more questions. We'll take one there and then one, one there. Starting there, please. Uh, my name is uh, Cvitin Chilimanov. I'm a journalist from Macedonia. It's one of those former communist countries which got a lot of help from American experts to the point that it's now green on the Fraser Report. And uh, uh, you, you also mentioned about the American influence in South Korea, helping leading this country toward economic freedom. I have to ask, do you see the current American administration fighting aggressively for economic freedoms in the world uh, the way it did in the Cold War when it chose its friends and allies, depending largely on the way they handle their economy, especially given that they don't seem to be uh, very much focused on economic freedom at home, or at least much more controlly than yeah. other administrations? Well, um, I'm not an expert when it comes to American foreign policy, but uh, no, I don't see that kind of uh, aggressive uh, attempt to sort of uh, influence uh, places and helping them towards economic freedom. Uh, and, and more than that, I think that during the Cold War, um, there was a geopolitical interest that for many reasons happened to... Uh, have a common denominator with economic freedom. Uh, the attempt to lure countries towards democracy and market economy, one attempt of doing that was to give them access to Western markets, to uh, give them the kind of, not really privileges, but freedoms uh, that, uh, that help countries like that along. I think that the, um, I mean, we're happy that the Cold War is not here anymore, but I think it somehow has taken away that sense of urgency to, to try to help people and other countries onto a path of economic openness to that regard. I think that the lack of any kind of leadership when it comes to free trade negotiations during the last 10 years or so from American administration has been completely terrible for for the world as a whole it has really meant that uh, we're not seeing much progress there a lot of countries have given up attempts to uh, grow out of their their problems by choosing a sort of western path if 
if if that is what it is and 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 rather we've seen more of backdoor protectionism rules of origins um uh, labor standards uh, different environmental rules and other things that are particularly um designed to keep out goods uh, from from other places so i think we've seen in a way a reversal of that kind of international leadership when it comes to uh, economic freedom and and that's sad i think that um there's much much more work there to be done well well i would i would have a slightly different uh, t- take on on that um johan i think uh, first of all uh, when we say is america going to have an effect you know the organization uh, that has had very large effect in the world is this organization, the Cato Institute, having nothing at all to do with the government. So I think we have to make a distinction between Americans, because Americans are doing so much good work around the world in an almost unbelievable way, from running orphanages in Uganda uh, as 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 religious groups or as as other kinds of eleemosynary uh, uh, groups, uh, to to um, uh, the. Um, uh, you know the tremendous effort that that uh, Cato, the Atlas Foundation, uh, the Hoover Institution, and a, and a variety of other people uh, make around the world to expose people to the ideas of economic freedom and 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 its importance. Uh, I still think that the United States is by far uh, the biggest force in the world for achieving these kinds of outcomes. I don't just because the government of the day, and even you know even the governmental presence through USAID and and things of uh, not USAID. What's the the program that sends academics around? Because more and more of those academics are good academics, and because we've kind of won that debate about you know there was a time when you said. Like when uh, I remember Václav Klaus saying to me, <laughs> when in 1990 we were we had a dinner in, uh, with Milton and and uh, uh, Rose and a few other people and and we were we were try- talking about well what we could do to help him out, and he said if there's any way you can stop those guys from Harvard coming over here that would be really really good because I just get the cabinet convinced to do something really sensible and then. The other Vaslav brings over the guys from Harvard and it screws them all up again. So if you could, st- but I think that that we've gone past that now. And then we've sort of won the debate, and we should, you know, recognize that. So the, even the hysteresis, the the, the 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 gravitational effect of all of that effort keeps on going, even though the government uh, the government has changed. Now there's one point in very particular we have to say about the United States. Everybody, you know whines and carps about how bad uh, uh, the U.S. is at free trade. And I once, I, I, for seven or eight years, or man, maybe nine years, I was on the Economic free, uh, Trade Advisory Committee to the Government of Canada trying to get the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement done, then trying to get the NAFTA done, and then getting the Canada-Chile free trade agreement done, and a variety of things like that. And uh, there was a fellow by the name of Dick Lipsy, and those of you who've done studied economics may know Lipsy and Steiner was a famous textbook and and Dick Lipsy was not was not very different than Paul uh, Samuelson in this regard that uh, he had a kind of reflex uh, uh, anti-American reflex and so Dick Lipsy and I were sitting on this panel and he said to me one day you know the Americans have a very terrible system of government and I said, is that so, Dick? Yeah, he says, very terrible. I said, you mean compared to Canada? Yes, compared to Canada. And I said, well, now the thing that you and I care most about is about trade, right? Free trade. Yes, it is, yeah. So then I showed him the statistics. 
And here was a guy who was as steeped in international trade rhetoric and, and numbers as you might believe anybody could be. And he was not aware of the fact that the United States had a tariff level half of the level that Canada had, and that the dispersion of tariffs in, in the United States was less than half of the dispersion of tariffs in Canada. And it's still true that when you do international comparisons, and you can take all of the major countries and you look at the United States, the United States, with the exception of agriculture, agriculture don't do great, but across the board, the United States is still the most free trading nation on earth. And you need to, you know, just don't, don't dish yourselves because that is, that is creating enormous opportunities for, uh, for everybody else in the world, not the least of which is Asia, which is developing as, as, uh, as we, we all know. So I, I'm, I am not concerned about uh, uh, the U.S., not yet. I mean, if, if we had another, uh, you know, long bout of the current uh, nonsense, maybe, but not, not, at, not, not at the moment. Well, uh, not according to the Economic Freedom of the World Index, uh, America is. Um, then we've got a lot of more free traded oriented countries in the Western world. But I agree, it's definitely up there. Uh, no, no discussion about that. But the problem is that twofold. Um, first of all, there's a tendency, at least with the current administration, that when problems strike somewhere, um, the solution is not more openness, it's less openness. We have a, a terrible uh, construction disaster in Bangladesh, textile manufacturing is in the informal sector, no oversight whatsoever, lots of people die. America responds with increasing tariffs to punish Bangladesh, which is really a way of saying you're too poor to trade with us. You're too poor to uphold great building standards. In that case, we won't trade with you. Uh, so stay away and become rich in some other way. And then we'll, uh, then we'll accept trade with you, which is obviously impossible. Uh, so it, it can be symbolic in some instances, didn't affect too much of Bangladesh's trade, but it's a powerful signal and that's a dangerous signal. And the second thing is, I agree, America is a free trading country if you compare it to almost all, all other countries but it could do much more when it comes to leadership in international negotiations, when it comes to uh, uh, free trade, because that is what has been lacking so far in making, taking the first steps in, in doing something real. We'll see what happens with the European-American partnership, but let's hope. We'll see. I'm afraid we've run out of time. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, keep your eyes out uh, for this, your schedules on your public television uh, stations for this documentary. And please join me in thanking both of our speakers today.